Hassan Eid had spent two years living in a city under siege. After he and his neighbors took part in the protest during the Arab Spring of 2011, Syrian President Bashar al-Assad began to punish towns like Qasim's. His forces bombed them, surrounded them, and starved them. Sensitive listeners should note, this story contains graphic scenes of war. Here's Qasim. I started looking into trash. I started looking for food in the streets. I started eating grass. One time, me and my friend were, like, really, really hungry, and we went out at night to look for anything to eat. So uh, we were walking um, downtown, uh, and we saw a house that was, like, recently bombarded by the regime. And there was only, like, a few walls standing. And I don't know how I saw a jar in the rubble. And inside that jar, there was um, almost like a, a handful of jam, pumpkin jam. And it had a very thick layer of dirt and, like, rotten stuff was, like something you will see in normal days and perhaps make you throw up. But all what I saw was food and not any food, like sugar, you know? And me and my friend just, with our hands, we like um, uh, swept away that thick layer of dirt. Then we started like just with our fingers, just eating this rotten, dirty pumpkin jam. And I think, I don't know what happened to us, but somehow we felt like we got high. We got like stoned or something. Like it felt so good. Like it was perhaps the most delicious dessert I ever had in my life. Thousands of Syrians have lost their lives in the conflict between forces loyal to President Bashar al-Assad and fighters opposed to his rule. An end to the conflict still doesn't seem to be in sight. Everyone who wants to really know what happened in Syria must understand that when the revolution happened, we had nothing to lose. It came after more than four decades of living under tyranny and injustice and, and uh, a lousy economy. Where protests erupted in March 2011, anti-Assad demonstrations broke out in other towns and cities. The government quickly turned to military force to crush the protests. All of a sudden, it was less like public unrest and more like civil war. The regime started to, let's say, punish Muadlamiya, sending car bombs, cutting the power, the water, the internet, daily bombardment for more than two years. But the worst part was the starvation. Sometimes, believe it or not, on the front lines, Assad soldiers used to make barbecues 
and play music and we will like just smell the food. Because of the government uh, bombardment and uh, arrests and massacres and violence, life was just too dangerous in Maddamiya. My mother went uh, to Jordan. Some of my brothers were outside of Syria. Some of them were still stuck on the borders, trying to uh, flee. Most of my friends killed or captured. The reasons that made me uh, protest and become a rebel I rebelled because I felt injustice uh, during my entire life. I rebelled because I was arrested and, and tortured. I rebelled because I didn't get my chance in school. I was perhaps the most active spokesperson for the opposition in English inside Syria back in 2013. I've seen a lot of my friends a lot of dear friends of mine who used to, you know, enjoy life. And uh, when they became fighters, they've changed. It made them somehow cruel. And uh, I was afraid that I might like it or fall into it I was afraid that uh, I don't know I will get used to it I never fought before never used weapons in my life so I tried my best to stay away from it as far as possible and as much as I could but I couldn't not until the end money became useless like there's nothing to buy I remember I used to see like children playing during the day while the bombardment is very very strong I used to go and like beg them, please go to your home, you might get killed. And they just ignore me or tell me just go away, whatever. Then I will like yell at them, try to scare them away and they won't get scared. Then I try to bribe them, like give them money, like $10. I used to like take money out of my pocket and tell them like, if you're gonna go home, I will give you this. Like the kids used to throw the money in my face and tell me, give us a piece of bread and we'll do anything you want. Just a piece of bread. And I had no answer. I used to sometimes like go to their families, like, come take your children inside. Like some of them actually, they were saying like, let them play outside. Better than them staying inside and crying, asking for food that I don't have. Let them play. What if a bomb fell? Well, then it will be a merciful way for them to leave this world. They will go somewhere where there's a lot of food, where they won't be hurt anymore. So, uh, 
Muslims, we have five prayers a day. I remember one time. When it was time for the early morning prayer, I just pulled my head off the bed, uh, walked a few steps, and out of nowhere I started hearing really terrifying uh, sirens, alarms coming from Damascus. And that was the very first time I hear the sound and, and the revolution. I was like, what's going on? Like, what's that? So I got close to uh, the window. After two years of living under bombardment and siege, you get to know like what kind of weapon the regime is using right now. You can tell, yeah, it's a tank, you know, uh, it's artillery, it's a mortar, it's whatever, it's a missile. Uh, but that was the very first time I hear this sound. Out of nowhere, I just uh, felt like my lungs were, were blocked. I started feeling like I was choking. I wasn't able to breathe. I wasn't able to scream. Uh, I started having this severe pain in my eyes, in my chest, in my heart. I didn't know if I was dreaming or if this is real. I didn't know. Like I. I didn't know, so my reaction was to beat my chest with my hand, with my fist and try as much as I can with all the strength that I had just to breathe, just to try to take a single breath. And it was so painful. Uh, I took the first breath and I started screaming like, I don't know what trying to wake up my friends and then I uh, ran to the bathroom and started washing my eyes with water with my face splashing it all over trying to take some of that pain the burning pain from my eyes trying to wake up my friends started uh, waking up coughing struggling to breathe the neighbors started screaming we didn't know what to do. We started putting our uh, pants on and, uh, I don't know, a t-shirt, something, uh, looking for our keys. I don't know, just trying to leave as fast as possible. Then I got to the street. And my God. Like... It was something that I always describe it as Judgment Day, that scene. You know, we hear, we read about it in the Bible or Quran that how people will be so uh, shocked, so afraid when they wake up from the dead, uh, the confusion, the terror. That's the closest thing I can describe. Men, women, and children running, falling on the ground, suffocating, like screaming in agony and terror. 
I saw I saw a little boy to my left uh, his face down he was choking nobody was there so I ran to try to see if I can help him or something I turned him uh, around when I'm on his back and like I will never ever forget the look on that little boy's face his eyes were like glassy uh, he was vomiting this white foam his lungs were making this horrible sound I ripped off his shirt started giving him CPR pushing on his heart lungs I started taking that white foam out of his mouth first with my fingers then with my mouth and spit it away and I started screaming and crying like a widow I stayed with him for almost a minute before my friend Alamdar got his car he had an old white Range Rover it was packed with children and maybe two ladies all of them were suffocating you can just see arms and legs he drove very fast and while he was driving through the streets of Matamiya I was watching the same scene all over people running falling on the ground second we got to the field hospital I wanted to carry the kid out of the car he seemed heavier than when I first carried him while I was trying to carry him I lost conscious and I uh, fell on the ground they said that the doctors gave me atropine CPR washed my body but my heart stopped they checked my pulse there was no pulse they moved on they had more than six maybe seven hundred people there were people helping them to like put the dead bodies on the side that put people who have a chance to live on the other side yeah they saw, thought I was dead I woke up surrounded with dead bodies took me a few minutes to remember where am I and uh, what happened uh, minutes later my friends came they noticed somehow I was moving or trying to move or I don't know what and they called on the doctors again they came they gave me I don't know three maybe four shots of atropine a lot of CPR washed my body until I woke up yeah I was opening my eyes 
people were screaming and shouting some out of joy for me being alive my friends uh, told me you should go out to uh, get fresh air because the air was uh, contaminated didn't understand what they said I actually at the beginning I didn't recognize who they are I didn't recognize where I am I didn't know if I am alive or dead so anyways uh, my friends helped me to go outside when I went outside and things were starting to uh, clear up minute after minute everybody was calling me Qasim so started saying well I guess my name is Qasim uh, I started feeling a little bit cold then I looked at my body and I noticed that I was uh, only in my underwear and I was covered with water I asked one of my friends to uh, bring me a jacket or something. I uh, told me all of my clothes were uh, like filled with sarin. I was like, sarin, what's, what's, what are you saying? What's sarin? This is what the doctors are saying. They're saying it's sarin gas. Syria used sarin gas on its own people, killing... Activists say more than 1,300 people were killed in 2013 during a sarin gas attack. You see the frothing in the mouth. You see people having convulsive activity, and people simply can't breathe. And it's a terrible uh, way to die. While my friend is coming back to get me my jacket, I heard a big explosion then another, then another, then like the earth literally starts shaking under my feet. People start screaming, Assad is bombing, Assad is bombing, run, hide. I saw like young men carrying AKs, uh, running and screaming, go to the front lines if you can fight, the government forces are trying to invade. I never had the urge or the need or the will to actually go to the front lines but after surviving that chemical attack after seeing the horrors and seeing how brutal those men are uh, after I woke up all what I was thinking about was just fighting back the look on that little boy's face I will never forget it and I wanted revenge that was the very first time I fight in my life Snap Judgment returns, Cosm heads to the front lines. Stay tuned.
last we left, Qasim's town was being bombarded by Syrian President Bashar al-Assad, and that's when he decided to join the rebel army and for the first time ever, head to the front lines. There was like 20 young men. They were all trying to load their AKs. They were arguing about how they should use the ammunition because we had no ammunition, nothing like a couple of hand grenades and uh, I don't know, maybe two, three thousand rounds for more than 20 fighters. So. Uh, FSA, the Free Syrian Army leader. Uh, he gave me an AK and two clips and a hand grenade and a, a sneakers because <laughs> I was barefoot too. And we tried to go to the front lines. We ran outside, bombs were falling, tanks were roaring, like I said. Three, maybe four of the guys who were with us died just while we were trying to cross the streets, like mortars uh, fell off the sky and they were shred to pieces. We got to the front lines. I saw the tanks. I saw Assad troops wearing like chemical uh, uh, gear protection. Like they were wearing masks and gloves. Yeah, I was stationed to cover a corner with another guy. Yeah, and my job was just to make sure if I see a soldier trying to cross the street to shoot at him. So it's very hard to see. There was this like crazy uh, death symphony, if we can call it this way. When I saw the soldiers coming, um, my heartbeats went crazy. I was very nervous and, I don't know, overwhelmed. Uh, I pulled the trigger, not knowing if I'm doing the right thing or the wrong thing, but I desperately wanted to pull that trigger. And when I did, I became a new person. I don't know if better or worse, but uh, I've changed. I remember I was very sad after surviving the chemical attack. I just started walking and walking and while I was walking they were bombing and uh, there was no electricity. Wherever I walk I will just hear people crying or bombs falling. It was very dark and then I kept walking until I got to the olive trees. Mm -hmm. 
I started to remember my childhood and all the good times that we spent here. I felt like hugging someone, there was nobody. So I looked around and I hugged an olive tree. I don't know, it uh, gave me some kind of comfort. Uh, the wind started blowing and uh, like uh, I felt like the olive tree was uh, practically hugging me back. I will tell you, I will tell you a story. One time, a month or two after the chemical attack, I was walking in the street uh, in Maldamia and uh, I heard a plane roaring and uh, I just looked up the sky I saw a fireball like a few meters away from me. In front of me there was a, a little girl with her family. They were walking. The missile exploded and they literally vanished. All I can see is smoke and this really awful scent of burned flesh. And I saw blood on my hands, blood on my face, on my t-shirt, and I thought that I was hit, but I wasn't even scratched. I wanted to take off my clothes and wash my body. I, I don't know, and end my life. I just couldn't take it. I, I was shocked. I was so angry. Uh, I ran back home. I took my rifle. I started running. I was running non-stop like Forrest Gump. People were asking me where am I going. I didn't answer. I didn't talk to anyone. And I got to the front lines in the northern part of the town. Where on the other side, a couple of uh, hundred meters away, there's an officer residence where Assad officers and their families and their mercenaries lived there. It was a very reckless uh, place to be. And I went up uh, in a building, like destroyed building, you know, second or third floor. And I put the scoop and I started searching for someone to kill. I saw an officer, an Assad officer, wearing his uniform, sitting with his wife and kid on the balcony. He was wearing the military uniform. She was holding like papers in her hands. She looked like a school teacher. 
and uh, they had a little boy. He was like sad and crying, I don't know what, and the father was trying to uh, make him happy, like laugh and like joke with him. Like the kid was pointing downstairs. I looked downstairs on the street. There was other other kids were playing. I think he was, he wanted to go play there. And his father didn't let him, so figure out he just loves him too much or he, he's too afraid to let him go downstairs. They had food, they had power, they had everything. They, they were just like a couple of hundred meters away from us. And I kept looking at the father, at the officer. And at that moment, I just saw him as a father. I didn't see him as a soldier who helps a dictator kill his own people. And I had this argument in my head. Should I take the shot or not? Should I kill him or not? Like everything in me wanted to pull that trigger so, so much. But I just couldn't do it. Not in front of his wife, not in front of his kid. While I was staring, the regime started bombing the town with artillery. And I knew that those bombs are killing people right now while I'm staring at that guy. Like, the wife didn't even blink when the bombs came out. Like, they didn't blink. Not even the kid. The kids downstairs kept playing. I didn't pull the trigger. And I went back and uh, my revenge was being better than them. That's what I told myself. Thanks so much to Qasem Eid for sharing his story with the SNAP. Qasem is currently living as a refugee in Germany, but was recently accepted into Columbia University. Super congratulations. You can check out his book, My Country. It's out now. I have a link to the book and his social media at snapjudgment.org. Original score for that story was by Leon Morimoto. It was produced by Liz Mack.